The following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. Well, good morning. Welcome to IBC. My name is Craig, and I'm so glad that you're here with us, whether you're in the room, whether you're watching us online. Thank you for being with us. We are in the third week of our series entitled, Can You Relate?, where we're looking at the importance of our relationships, how relationships shape us and form us into the people that we are and the people that we're becoming. And so because of that, we want to, as Christ followers, look at what Jesus himself tells us and teaches us about how to have and live into healthy relationships, relationships that honor God, Relationships that allow us to love the people around us well, while at the same time we are living out our unique calling and purpose in this world. It's what psychologists might refer to as a healthy, differentiated self. And Jesus is our model for that. And so the first week we looked at how Jesus related with his friends. And last week we talked about how Jesus related with his family. And this morning we're going to broaden our scope a little bit and talk about how Jesus related with the crowds. And I got to tell you, when they told me this was my topic for this morning, my first thought was, I'm not even sure what that means. I don't know how to relate to that. I don't know how to talk about that. I don't have a crowd. There's no crowd following me around. I'm not Justin Bieber. I'm not, you know, Taylor Swift. What, what am I supposed to say that would be relevant for normal people like you and me? But the more I thought about it, I thought, you know what? That's not entirely true. Because for the first time in human history, we all have the capability of carrying around with us in our pockets, purses, uh, backpacks, our own little crowd, don't we? Through social media uh, uh, platforms like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, we have crowds that follow us and monitor what we're doing, watch us, comment on us, judge us. And what we know about crowds is that crowds can be a little unpredictable, can't they? Even all the way back in Jesus's day, crowds went from, you know, shouting Hosanna, Hosanna as Jesus rides into the city on a donkey to just a few days later crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And not a lot has changed in those 2000 years, has it? If you watch the news at all over the last year and a half, we got a good look into crowds and how crowds operate and how quickly crowds can change and get out of control. We saw crowds who started out as you know, peaceful protesters and then it turns into looting and burning. We saw crowds that start out in a political rally and end up storming the United States Capitol. Uh, crowds can take on a life of their own. There is great power in the collective of a crowd. Uh, crowds have the power to influence. Crowds have the power to shape our behavior and, and the way that we think. And crowds often come with their own set of expectations and demands from us. Tell us what we want to hear or we'll cancel you. Do what we want you to do or we will destroy your reputation. On the other hand, though, crowds, the applause of a crowd can be very exhilarating. It can be almost intoxicating, can it? To to be competing in an athletic event in a stadium where everyone's cheering you on. I mean, the, the feeling of that. I have no idea what that would feel like. I don't have an athletic bone in my body, but I could imagine that would be awesome. Or for a public speaker or an actor to stand up on a stage and get the applause of the crowd. Again, I have no idea what that would feel like, but you have the chance to change that for me today at the end of this talk. So just think that over. 
Because I think there's something deep down inside of all of us that just wants to be acknowledged, that wants to be affirmed, that wants to be accepted by the crowd. And the big tech social media giants of our day have figured that out about us, haven't they? That we crave approval and affirmation. We want to be liked. We want to fit in. So they've generously supplied us with symbols that we can send to each other. Like thumbs up and hearts and, and stars that we kind of feed each other's approval addiction. We post something on Instagram and just a few minutes later, what are we doing? Refresh, refresh. How many people have read my story? Has anybody shared it? Has anybody commented on it? Why have they not read my story? Refresh, refresh, refresh. And before you know it... Your mood for the entire day has been set by the crowd. Uh, Your self-esteem goes up or down that day based on the crowd's reaction. You become almost a puppet, a stooge controlled by the whims of the crowd. Now, Jesus knows a thing or two about interacting with the crowd. In Mark's gospel alone, there are 30, over 30 times that it references Jesus with the crowds. And so our question for this morning is, what can Jesus teach us about how to relate to the crowds in a way that doesn't destroy our soul and just suck the life right out of us? How do we connect with the crowds, with our world, in a positive, constructive way without losing who we are, without compromising and forfeiting our own sense of self and identity? And I think we begin to get a good understanding of that when we just listen in on Jesus's last prayer for his disciples and for all of us. He's in the upper room with his closest friends and he prays to his father for them and for us. And we're going to look at just a little portion of what he prayed. And this is from the message version. It's found in John chapter 17, verse 15. He says this, Father, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you guard them from the evil one. They are no more defined by the world than I am defined by the world. Make them holy, consecrated with the truth. Your word is consecrating truth. In the same way that you gave me a mission in this world, I give them a mission in the world. I think Jesus gives us right there uh, his overall blueprint for relating to the crowds or more broadly to the world around us in a healthy way. That we would learn to live in the world, but we wouldn't be defined by the world. We wouldn't be of the world. At the same time, though, we would be for the world. I mean, that's it. If you want to live a life of, of, of meaning and significance, a life that matters for building and growing the kingdom of God, that is the overall strategy for relating to the world, to the crowds. But if you grew up in a, a conservative kind of traditional church background like I did, uh, I think we were only good at about one third of that. I heard most of my life growing up, you're to be in the world, but not of the world. In the world, but not of the world. And the be in the world part of that was almost like an apology, right? Like God was apologizing. I'm sorry that I'm having to put you in this world. Uh, Heaven's not ready yet. So I'm just going to have to stick you here. It's really my only option right now. And as soon as I can, I'll come get you. But for right now, you're going to have to be in, in the world. But when we look at Jesus's prayer, that doesn't seem to be his heart here, does it? In fact, he says, God, Father, do not take them out of the world. Will you keep them in the world? Because God loves this world. God created this world and he's on mission to rescue and restore it. And we get to play a part in that. So being in this world is not some punishment for us. It's not our purgatory, our waiting room while we wait for the good stuff. 
This is where God has us now because this is where God wants us now. We get to participate in his great plan of redemption. And the reason we're in the world is because this is where all the action is. How can we be of any help if if we're not in the midst of it? It would be like calling your fire department because your house is on fire and saying, hey, our house is on fire. We need some help. And them saying, oh, yeah, we can see it from here. We see the smoke going up. That looks pretty bad. But don't worry about us. We're all safe and sound here at the fire station. How ridiculous would that be? If they're going to be of any help, they got to venture out and come to where the help is needed. We are to be in this world. But then there's the second part, but not of this world. That's the part that we really emphasized growing up, right? It was like, sorry, you have to be in the world. But while you're here, make sure you're not of the world. Stay out of the world. Katie, bar the doors. You make sure you huddle together until I can get there to take you back to heaven. We thought that the not of this world was the goal. That that was where everything was headed. Stay safe, stay calm, stay away. Don't get your hands dirty. Don't listen to that kind of music. Don't watch that television show. Don't wear those kind of clothes. Don't hang out with those people. But that was never the goal. The nod of this world is just a means to an end to the ultimate goal of rescuing the world. My granddaughter, who's almost three, has been in swim lessons this summer. And it's just been so much fun uh, to watch her do that because her teacher is probably in her 90s. She taught all three of my boys swim lessons. She was my Sunday school teacher when I think I was three years old. And she's old school. Uh, I'm still a little bit afraid of her, even at my age. But what I know is coming up in her series of lessons is the rescue lesson, where uh, she will talk to them about what to do if a friend or someone is panicking and drowning, they can't swim in a swimming pool. And her first rule to them will be, do not jump in the pool with them. Because in their panic, they will grab a hold of you and they will pull you under the water and you will both drown. So here's the strategy. You you find a firm way to stand on the side or or get down firmly on the side of, of the ground next to the pool so that you can extend a lifeline to them, some pole, some something they can grab a hold of and you can pull them to safety. But the ultimate goal is not for you to stay out of the pool. The ultimate goal is to put yourself in a position where you're best able to help the person that's in distress in the pool so that you can eventually bring them out of the pool safely. And that's the strategy here. The end goal is not to be not of this world. The end goal is to be effective in our mission for the world, in the world, not of the world, but for the world. And ultimately how effective we are hinges on our ability to engage with this world while not allowing the world to pull us under the water with it. Which brings us back to our original question. What can Jesus teach us about relating to the crowds in a way that is constructive and healthy and effective without us compromising and losing our sense of identity? To, as Jesus just said, not let the world define us. That we would not look to the world for our identity, for our our worth, for our affirmation. But instead, we would let the truth of what God says about us shape us, shape our hearts, guide our lives. And to that end, I want to begin this morning with a verse of scripture that I think if I could just grab a hold of this because I am a recovering approval addict and I'm not very far along in the process. But if I could just grab a hold of this one passage I think it could change everything. I think this could set some of you free today. It's found in Proverbs 29, 25. 
And the writer says this, it is a dangerous trap to be concerned with what others think of you. It is a dangerous trap to be concerned with what other people think of you. But if you trust in the Lord, you are safe. Allowing other people to define you. Living for the approval of other people. Living to please the crowd. He says, that's a trap. And I think we've all had some experience in that, right? It goes by different names in different seasons of life. In high school, we call it peer pressure. As adults, we kind of soften the title a little bit. Call it people pleasing. Uh, Psychologists, professional counselors sometimes refer to it as codependency. But we all know what it is, right? It's what keeps us up at night because somebody didn't call us back that day. And we're just worried. I wonder why they didn't call me back. Are they mad at me? Did I say something? Did they not want to spend time with me? What did I do? Or why you can be overly sensitive at times about what people say. Innocent things that they say that you just ruminate over, right? Why did they say that? Why did that person just tell me I look like I've lost a ton of weight? What does that mean? Does it mean I used to look like I weighed a ton? Why would they say that? That's kind of mean. It's why you have a hard time saying no to any, anything. Even when your calendar is full and your wallet is empty. Because somebody might be disappointed in you. It's a trap. Some versions use the word snare. The Hebrew word that's translated there is actually the word mokish, which is literally the hook that people in that day would put in a large animal's nose to lead it around. So you take a 2,000 pound oxen, you put the, the ring in the nose, and then you can just lead that big animal around anywhere you want to. A toddler could grab a hold of that ring and lead it this way or that way. And it's a great picture of what we look like when we allow the crowd to lead us along. This is gonna be kind of gross, You're not going to want to shake my hand afterwards. Probably best anyway. This is a little COVID still going on. So, but this is what it looks like. This is the visual I think he's trying to give us. This is us. Do you like me? Do you, did you read my post? Do you want to hang out with me? What do you think about me? And that is a trap scripture says. And yet somehow Jesus managed to steer clear of that trap. To live in this world, not allow the world to define him, to pressure him, to to control him so that he could carry out his mission for this world effectively. And I think it's partly because he understood the problem. He understood the ramifications of the people-pleasing trap. And so I want to briefly just touch on three of them this morning and then contrast them with the Jesus approach, with how he handled this. And the first problem with people-pleasing is it will always lead to a life of frustration and exhaustion. It will always lead to frustration and exhaustion. The reason is because it's an impossible goal. You can't do it. You cannot please all the people all the time. God couldn't do it. Why would you think you could do it? Trying to appease your critics and stay in everyone's good graces, it just never works. And here's why. Because different people want different things out of you. Your mom wants this, but your dad wants that. That co- co-worker wants this out of you. That co-worker wants that out of you. Some people want you to be more serious. Other people say you need to be more easygoing. Some people want you to be nicer. Other people say you need to be bolder. Even here in church, some of you come to church and you think the music, we need to be singing more hymns. They need to bring the volume down a little bit. While others of you are saying, no, we need to amp it up. We need some more rock and praise in here. Come on, lighten it up a little bit. Some of you want the sermons to be shorter. Some of you want the sermons to be longer. Okay, who am I kidding? Nobody wants the sermons to be longer. But you will end up like a professional juggler trying to juggle flaming bowling balls if you go down this route. You will become a chameleon. You will be whoever you need to be in order to please the group that you're with at the time. 
You're like a one-man show, but you're not gonna be able to keep up with all the characters that you're trying to play. It will wear you out. Now contrast that with Jesus's approach. It's so simple. Listen to what he says. I don't try to please myself. I don't even try to please myself. I only please the one who sent me. Jesus would say to us this morning, maybe it's time you reduce the size of your audience down to one, that you live for an audience of one. I'm not trying to draw the biggest crowds or tell the most entertaining stories. I'm just doing what my father has asked me to do. And that's what Jesus did. And you have to know at times, it just drove his disciples crazy. You remember when he fed the 5,000 and and his ministry was just going and blowing, it was exploding and the disciples had to all be thinking, we are on the train to fame and fortune. This is awesome. We're about to take over everything. Jesus, you are amazing. And, And right after that, Jesus says to them, it says, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they begin to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, what? Came out and and allowed them to do that? No, he withdrew to the mountain by himself. And I'm sure the apostles were like, wait, Jesus, where are you going? Come back. Did you hear? They want to make you king. Let's go for this. This is going to be awesome. And so they go after him. They go follow him. The crowds go follow him. And they find him, and this is what he says to them. Very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs that I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. In other words, this is all about you. And so they ask him, well, what then will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do for us? Come on, Jesus, uh, perform, do your tricks for us. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it's written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise them up on the last day for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. And I'm sure at this point, the apostles looked at each other and said, buzzkill, Jesus, what are you doing here? You got the whole crowd here. They are excited about what's going on. And you're talking about all this weird stuff, this Dracula kind of stuff you're bringing in, drinking blood, eating flesh, ixnay on the ud blade drinking Jesus. We're gonna lose the whole crowd. And you know, that's exactly what happened. Verse 60 says that the crowd said, this is too hard. This teaching is too hard for us. Verse 66 says, at this point, many of his disciples turned away. They deserted him. Who do you think Jesus's audience was? Who was he trying to please? Only one, his heavenly father. Paul would later echo the same thought over in Galatians when he says, you think I'm trying to make people accept me? No, God is the one who I'm trying to please. Am I trying to please people? If I still wanted to please people, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Guess what? Here's the deal. You are ridiculously in charge of your own life. And you get to make the decision about who the audience of your life will be. And so the question is, who's it going to be? Who are you going to live for? Paul says, I've made my choice. I know about this audience of the crowd. I know how fickle they can be. I know how different people want different things. I know how it keeps me from being who I really am as I'm trying to play to the peanut gallery. So I've made my decision. I'm just going to please God. Because if I please God, 
I don't have to worry about all the other stuff. It's this incredibly simple thought that says, I can't always please everyone all the time, but there is one that I can always please. And it's my heavenly father. That one idea, it is so clarifying, so life-changing. You are responsible for the audience that you choose to live for. And you can opt for the nose ring and you can be yanked around for your entire life. Or you can choose God as your audience. The God who says, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Jesus says, reduce the size of your audience down to one. The second problem with people pleasing is you will end up going places, doing things that you never intended to do, all in the name of trying to be accepted, trying to gain approval. And I learned this lesson the hard way all the way back in second grade. You know, I wanted to be in with the cool kids. I wanted to fit in. And I figured out early on that I wasn't going to be athletic, but I could make people laugh. And so that's how I kind of connected with people. And so one day I'm in class and the teacher says, I got to go down to the office for a minute. Everyone needs to stay in their seat, do their work. There's to be no talking. And so she left and I thought, this is my opportunity. The crowd is waiting. And so I got up out of my desk and I walked to the back of the classroom. And at the back of our classroom, we had a wall that went up about three fourths of the way up. And then the real wall was behind it. But in that little space behind it was our cubbies where we hung our jackets and things. And so I got up and I went around there behind that wall, like back up in here, climbed up on the cubbies and looked over the top of the wall. And I started making faces to the class and sounds like, ooh, 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 hee, hee. and the class started laughing. They started responding. I thought, this is great. This is, this is the life I have mission accomplished. And so I crawled back down from my cubbies and I, I came back to my desk and I was just getting to my desk and here came Miss Young in the class. And she said, Hey, uh, I heard laughing down the hall. What was that about? And I mean, in a nanosecond, that crowd turned on me and they're like, it was Craig. And so she came over to my desk and she said, Mr. Pierce, would you like to tell me what was so funny? And I said, you know, it really wasn't all that funny, but I just went back to the back of the class for a minute. And she said, well, why don't you show me what you did? So I said, okay, well, I I went back here and she said, okay, and this was the funny part. And I said, well, I climbed up on the cubby. She said, okay, go ahead, climb up there. So I climbed up and, and and she said, and you made faces. I want to see your faces. So I'm over the wall and I'm looking at the class and I'm making my face. Now they can't see her because she's behind this wall with me. And just as I'm doing my first, ooh, ooh, ee, ee, bam. Now you young people aren't gonna know what that was, but in my day, teachers had wooden paddles in their classroom and she just used it on my behind. And bam, here came another one. And only my face is showing to the class. And I don't know what my expression was like, but I'm sure a tear went down my face and I just kind of did this like this and sat down and cried. I ended up in a place I never thought I would be all in the name of wanting to be accepted. King Saul knew what that was like. You remember him? He was the first king of Israel. He becomes king. I'm sure in the beginning, he just wanted to please God. And so the prophet Samuel comes to him and says, Saul, here's your first job. Here's your first task that God wants you to do. If you're going to please him, he wants you to wipe out all the idolaters in the land. Every last one of them, destroy every one of them. Not an easy task for a brand new king, right? Particularly if the king has a little bit of people pleasing in him, because that's not going to please a lot of people, particularly the people you're about to wipe out. And so Paul, I mean, Saul gives it some thought 
Um, you know, I'm sure he's thinking this is not going to be very politically correct. Uh, the crowd's going to be saying you're a bigot, you know, live and let live. They're not bothering you, right? But then he goes to his advisors, the ones who are keeping their pulse on his popularity and the poll numbers. And they're saying, yeah, you can't do that, Saul. Don't do that. And so he doesn't. He doesn't wipe out all the idolaters. And it ends up being the beginning of the end of his reign as the king. And later on, he would say to Samuel, if, you, if you're wondering what his motivation was behind it all, he just spells it out here in uh, 1 Samuel 15. He says, I sinned. I trampled roughshod over God's word and your instructions. I cared more about pleasing the people. I let them tell me what to do. You'll end up in places you never intended to be. Now contrast that with the Jesus way because Jesus just says straight up, I'm not interested in crowd approval. And you know why? Because I know you and your crowds. I know that love, especially God's love, is not even on your working agenda. And I can attest to that as a second grader. There wasn't an ounce of love in that classroom that day as they all pointed to me. The New Living Translation says it this way. Your approval means nothing to me. Jesus did not give in to the pressures of pleasing the crowd. He reduced the size of his audience down to one. And then he focused only on pleasing that one. And then finally, and I think the most significant consequence of people pleasing is that it will keep you from fulfilling God's purpose in your life because you cannot be concerned about what all the people want, all the people think and be concerned about what God wants and God thinks at the same time. Rick Warren, who's a pastor and best-selling author, wrote The Purpose Driven Life, says uh, there are two things that keep people from fulfilling their purpose in life, the top two things. One is envy and the other is people pleasing. 1 Thessalonians 2 says, our purpose is to please God, not people. Jesus was on a mission and he wasn't about to let the comments and the opinions and the judgments of of the peanut gallery or even the praise of the crowds keep him from fulfilling it. Over in uh, in Mark's gospel, as he begins his narrative of Jesus' story, he starts out by talking about how, you know, Jesus begins teaching in the synagogues with such authority and Jesus begins healing and his ministry begins growing. And, And so he recounts this one day where everybody's bringing their sick to Jesus to be healed. There's just lines of people in front of Jesus and it goes all day long into the night. Jesus has to be exhausted. And then finally, Jesus goes to bed. And Mark writes in verse 35, the next morning, Jesus got up long before daylight, left the house while it was dark, made his way to a secluded place to give himself to prayer. Sound familiar? It's what he did the last time we looked at a story like this. And later, Simon and his friends searched for him and they finally tracked him down and they told him, everyone is looking for you. They want you, Jesus. Do you hear the crowds? Jesus, Jesus, they're out there. Come on, they're calling your name. Do what you did yesterday. Do it all over again. Now, let's be honest. If that were me, if that were you, wouldn't we be thinking, they want me? They want me out there again? Yes, I'll be right out there. I'll do whatever they want. This is awesome. But that wasn't Jesus. He went away to be alone with his father. And here's why. Because when people start getting too big in your life, God will become too small in your life. And so Jesus knew he had to get away from the crowds and spend time with his father and amplify who God was. Because as God got bigger, then the people get smaller. And it's why he was able to say to them in response, hey, we have to go on. We got to go on to the surrounding villages so that I can share my message with the people there. That is my mission. And guess what? That's your mission. 
That's our mission, spreading the good news of what Jesus offers. But let me warn you, warn you, if you're looking to the crowd for your approval, for affirmation, you will miss opportunity after opportunity to speak up on behalf of Jesus because you'll be too worried about what other people might think instead of what might be most beneficial in that moment. We see it happen all over the New Testament. Just as one example, John chapter 12, it says, nevertheless, many, many people, even the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, because of this little crowd over here, they were not confessing him so that they would not be excommunicated from the synagogue. And here's the kicker for they loved the approval of people rather than the approval of God. So let me ask you this, who around you would hear about Jesus this week? Who would hear about Jesus in your office, in your neighborhood, in your grocery store? Who would hear if you weren't afraid of what the crowd might think? And I can only answer for me, but I would just say more people than are hearing about him right now. And that's embarrassing. That's a tragedy. Jesus never lost sight of what his mission was. He was in the world. He was not defined by the world. Why? Because he was for the world. You know, the most common reaction Jesus had towards the crowd, we see it over and over in the gospels when he saw them. It wasn't, hey, what in the world's the matter with these people? Tell me, not the crowds again. Get these people away from me. That wasn't his reaction. He didn't fire back on Instagram because someone criticized or posted a comment that, was, that offended him. He didn't block or unfriend people because there were viewpoints out there that were different than his own. You know what his first response almost always was? We see it over here in Matthew 9. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus' first reaction, his initial gut feeling towards the crowds was compassion. Is that yours? I can't say that it's always mine. If only we could see like Jesus sees Because I don't think Jesus just lumped everybody into the crowd. I think Jesus saw individuals in the crowd. I think Jesus knew their stories. Jesus knows your story. And he knows there's not a human story out there that's not full of heartache and pain and brokenness. And he's full of compassion. He's not angry. He's not disappointed. He understands. He knows everything about you. Every secret thing that you don't want anybody else to know. And he still loves you. He loved you enough to go to a cross for you. I think Jesus had to think every time he looked out over a crowd, if only, if only they knew, only they knew how much I love them. If only they knew what I think about them. If only they knew they don't have to worry about what other people think. I've already accepted them. I've already approved them. Becoming distracted by what the crowd thinks about you is the fastest way to forget what God says is true about you. And he says, you're my child, you're mine. You are chosen. I love you. You're already accepted. Paul would later write in 1 Thessalonians, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our heart. He understood whose approval mattered. And he, had, and he knew he had it, and so he lived in it. We live our lives from the approval of God, not for the approval of people, of the crowds. That's what Jesus did. He reduced the size of his audience to one. He lived to only please that one. And then he lived out of that approval. He was in the world, not defined by the world, so that he could be for the world. And may we, like Jesus, Be grounded in who we are, 
firmly planted on what he says about us, standing by the side of the pool, ready at a moment's notice to throw out the lifeline to the crowd, to a world, to the world that God so loved. That is our calling. That is our joy. That is our privilege. And it's what Jesus prayed for us in the world, not of the world, but for the world. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.